Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And this is a very special episode because it's our fifth anniversary. It is. I remember, I think we even recorded on Thanksgiving night. And, we may have. And, and then I edited it like the next day and the Thanksgiving weekend was when we uploaded it. It was so exciting. Yes, it was exciting. And right now is the night before Thanksgiving. So it's very, very exciting. And for if we have any uh, Native Indigenous listeners, I just want to say I like Thanksgiving because of the food. Yes. But I don't buy into the narrative of the white people coming to the rescue, everyone getting along. But also the story that we learned was that the, the Native people came to our rescue right and and i'm not justifying i'm not saying that you know yeah that was before the smallpox blankets and you know well that's what always happens you know putting them in schools someone an inch and they'll take a mile yeah and i sympathize with all that but i do like my traditional thanksgiving i also like this even though this is gonna sound i'm not well not just corny but i don't want to sound like i'm i'm um diminishing the bad things right about the history of the holiday but i do like the idea of people all people in the it's a it's not a religious holiday it's right. a holiday that every citizen or non-citizen everyone living every resident of this country can share right we're thankful to live here and we are thankful for each other and it's more about- i wish more people were Right. And it's more about getting together with people and sharing a meal than it is about celebrating a faulty narrative. I don't know how familiar people who don't live in the U.S. are with Thanksgiving, but for our listeners who may live overseas and stuff, basically what you do on Thanksgiving is you have a traditional, most people have a traditional meal of turkey, mashed potatoes, stuffing, gravy cranberry sauce i'm getting so hungry and and a lot of other stuff but those are the basics some people have other stuff lots of people invite people over people drink too much and have arguments about shit that happened 40 years ago that's kind of a christmas i don't like that Um, and people watch football no which is more not something i'm really into so what i like about it is aside from the fact that it's now commercialized into the kickoff of the Christmas shopping season. I like the fact that all it is is about getting together and eating and being with people. No presents or stuff like that. There's no pressure except to eat. Right. All you do is eat. And then you bring home leftovers. And I love Mm. the leftovers. I love the, like the turkey with the mashed potatoes and gravy Mm -hmm. and cranberry sauce Mm. and stuffing, Mm. like all together. Uh, Yes. And I made cranberry sauce today. That's good because there's a shortage of the canned. (laughs) And there's a shortage of cranberries because I bought. No, no. In fact, fact, I bought Maine cranberries and people should help out the cranberry growers. Although it'll be too late when people hear this, but making still have them to Christmas. It's wicked easy to make too. In fact, I made a lot so I'd have extra. Yum. Okay. And now I'm wicked hungry. Me too. I can't wait to eat tomorrow. And speaking of overseas listeners, our last episode, we recorded too soon for me to get this in, but we heard from our listener in Wales, whose name I totally shredded two episodes ago, and his name is pronounced Kenneth. 
which I never would have gotten from looking at the spelling. His name's Kenneth Roberts, not the one who wrote Northwest Passage in Arundel, but the one who listens to our podcast, which is much more important. And I appreciate his getting in touch and letting us know how to pronounce his name because we pronounced it totally wrong. It's always great to uh, get some feedback from people. And it's cool too, that people who live all the way halfway around the world. I know. Listen to us. I know. It's always fun. Yeah. It's, uh, you kind of wonder. <laughs> hey, don't but, sell our, no. us short, Missy. No. And speaking of, well, not speaking of anything, but right a couple hours before we started recording tonight, word came down that the three white men in Georgia who shot Ahmaud Arbery were all found guilty of murder. That is a big deal because a nearly all white jury found white men guilty of killing a black in man Georgia. in Georgia. And I'm not going to say this changes everything because it's one case and the kid was so obviously not doing anything wrong. I thought it was kind of funny that the lawyers for one of the white guys was complaining about all the people outside protesting and said, this is like a modern day public lynching. And I'm thinking, gee, you know, it's funny because I thought what they did to Ahmaud Arbery was a modern day public lynching. Exactly. But one reason we were going to bring it up, whether that happened or not, is because the white guys who chased the unarmed black guy, he was jogging. I don't go into all the details, but, you know, God forbid you're a young black man jogging in a neighborhood with a bunch of rednecks i know Um, poor guy but they were claiming self-defense because after chasing the kid for five minutes in their pickup truck with their gun one of the guys confronted him with the gun and apparently and you couldn't see another guy was filming it on his phone but you couldn't see because they were on the other side of the truck but ahmad grabbed the gun so they were claiming supposedly supposedly, so they were claiming self-defense as you know now from listening to us every state in the u.s it's one of those quirky lovable things about the united states has different laws different interpretations of law in georgia you can use deadly force against someone if you believe the other person is going to kill or gravely injure you and there's no obligation to retreat and the other thing too is they were also claiming they were making a citizen's arrest which they weren't and it's interesting that the citizen's arrest law in Georgia was written in 1863 as a way to capture escaped slaves and also black people who may or may not be escaped Just, slaves. You didn't like seeing them around. Apparently. Right. And, and that's, that was changed a little since Ahmaud Arbery's case became public. And the only reason the case became public is because one of the stupid rednecks. <laughs> I know, on his phone. Idiot. And that, Although it's and, good he did. Right. That and that video moron. didn't even, they weren't even charged until months and months later when that video was leaked and there was an outcry and then It happened in February 2020, but we were talking about this because in our own episode 69, Catching Murder with Honey or whatever the name was, Maine self-defense law is quite different. Yes, we we talked about it a little bit in Maine self-defense law. First of all, you can't claim self-defense if you attack, if you are the attacker first and then someone's defending themselves. If you attacked me and then I grabbed your gun and then you grabbed it back and shot me, you started it. So that's not considered self-defense. You could say I had a reasonable, whatever. You You also have to 
be in imminent danger of your life. That someone has to be pointing a gun at you and about to shoot it. And you can't be like, oh, I thought that guy had a gun and I was afraid he was going to kill me. So I shot him. Even if someone's holding a gun, like pointing it at the ground or something. The main thing is that we talked about in that case, Campbell, whatever his name, Campbell, Kimball and Campbell. Campbell was the shooter and Kimball was the the guy that got shot if there is a way to retreat or if there is a way for you to escape it is not self-defense so if you could get in your car and drive away if you could run behind a tree if you could jump in the river and swim away if if there's any way for you to be able to get out of that situation without killing somebody then you cannot claim self-defense right and, it's and that's different the, in every it's right and that's that's state. the biggest difference between maine and georgia is because in georgia there's no obligation to retreat if he did grab travis what's his name's gun the gun was still pointed at him travis pulled well, what are you gonna do just sit there and be shot he did you everything he could to get away from he did everything he could to get away from those assholes, know, you know? know, and and I want to say too, they like one of the things him down and they said they had a right to, because they stopped him and it like that. The, they them. said they wanted to talk. I used to run, I ran for 10 or 15 years and wow, occasionally it was always a sleazy, not sleazy even, but always a middle-aged white guy would be like drive up and either want to ask me something or ask me if I wanted to ride. And yeah, I'm out running. So yeah, I really want to ride. And I would (laughs) ignore them because when you're put in a situation like that, you ignore the person and that's what Ahmaud Arbery was doing. And I thought the prosecutor was great. And she pointed out that you don't have a right to shoot somebody and kill them because they didn't stop to talk to you. No shit. In America... You are not required to stop to talk to anyone that you don't want to stop and talk to. And then the defense also made it look like, oh, was he really out running because he was wearing khaki shorts? He didn't have socks on. And she brought up his long, dirty toenails, yeah, which I, I thought what was awful I mean, was, and disgusting and I'm mother. sure did not help the case. Her mother but, got up and walked out. But as someone who's run in road races and many just casual group runs where there have been young men in their early 20s and late teens, I can tell you lots of them run without socks on. Lots of them don't wear proper running gear and lots of them have really gross feet. So (laughs) I don't think having long, dirty toenails means you're not out. But that was just so insulting. What you so to be outside, you have to have a specific reason to be there. You can't just be walking around. agree with this but their redneck defense was he was a black man running so obviously he had done something wrong and there was this house under construction that he used to wander into he didn't steal anything the owner wasn't concerned and that's another thing that i out of nosiness or looking for a porta potty or other things when i was out running would wander into places I wasn't supposed to be either. But yeah, their implication was, is it realistic to think he was jogging? He was running and he... Well, you know, and the thing about like some certain people and we've seen all these videos constantly now, and it's all uh, most of the time white people, Mm -hmm. men and women that Mm -hmm. feel that they have the right to just go and start telling some like, who the fuck are you? I would never go up to somebody and be like, what are you doing here? Unless they're like walking into my house, then I'd be like, why are you in my house? But like, if they're walking down the street or if they're in my neighbor's yard, if I saw a guy in my neighbor's yard, I wouldn't be like, what are you doing here? You don't live there. First of no. all, maybe I just don't give a shit. But also, <laughs> who 
made right. you in charge well, it's of called everybody. it's called white entitlement and it is yeah. it really and i'm not defending those guys at all at all i don't think they're they were like Let, let's go go out and get us a no, black guy but- and shoot him but i think that and this is one of the issues with systemic racism and everything they have confederate flag license plates and everything they're geared towards assuming any young black man is up to no good and that they have a right to do something about it and that's one of the biggest problems with race in america that that attitude has to change i know young black men don't have to stop running or doing anything else white entitled people have to realize that they don't have a right this isn't fucking 1860 i know georgia you know, you People do not have yeah. a right. And a black person doesn't have to be, be deferential to you. Right. Just because guess what? You know, right. Jim Crow laws are over. But I think that's one of the biggest problems that they were like, well, he didn't stop when we asked him to. So he must be doing and, to, and they weren't making any fucking citizens arrest. They were out the to hassle him. Even and, if someone does citizens because they didn't, they never Give told them. And break. and one you of the can't things just go and decide you're going to arrest somebody for and, no. And they weren't. They they were going to and and um and one of the big things that hurt. In fact, the defense there was really no defense. But one of the big things is the nine one one call. They never said we saw this guy take something. This guy's a burglar. They said there's a black guy running down the street. That was their nine one one call. There's a black guy running down the street. How obvious is that? The prosecution didn't even have to barely bring up race because <laughs> but, it doesn't matter. Everything they did was wrong. Right. It Everything doesn't matter why. Right. I mean, it does, but you and, know, as right. far as and then the defense, court, right. The defense did a lot of racist things that, oh, yeah. Like, like they did want so many black preachers. They, they said, the yeah, they should keep all the black pastors out of the courtroom. There were too many black pastors and it was influ- going to influence the oh, all that, white yeah. jury. But anyway, Jesus. moving on to another thing that sticks in our craw. Ooh. When on the last episode, you did your NNW on that film, documentary film, This Changes Everything, about yeah. sexism in the film industry, which I watched. And as you predicted, it irked me. In that, they talked about the Bechdel test, which is basically you take any work, whether it's a book, a movie, a TV show, and see if it has two women having a conversation that's not about a man or men. And when you think about it, you're like, of course, everything has that, you know, and that was what, almost two weeks ago, I started paying attention to that. And it's friggin' astounding how few (laughs) things have conversations between two women at all. And then that are about a man or men watching, you know, my usual, you know, I like to wind down at night by watching an hour or two of TV, whatever it may be. Since then, I've watched probably two dozen episodes of Seinfeld, hmm. which is I love and is funny, but, um, you know, there's only one girl, the Smurfette. Yeah. Um, several different series, true crime stuff, but also fictional crime, most of them BBC. And I didn't keep track of how many hours of TV I've watched. <laughs> But putting aside the documentaries and stuff, which are a whole different story, I've watched hours and hours and hours of TV since we recorded that episode and counted two conversations between women that weren't about man or men. But I came up with some other 
questions. Now, these are all things to ask yourself when you're watching stuff or reading something. And even when I'm writing my book, I'm going to keep this stuff in mind because these are all things that are just common for male characters, okay? But not females. So a conversation between two women about anything. A conversation between two women that isn't about men or another man. Okay. A conversation between two women where one doesn't end up being a victim or a murder victim. So the conversation was then just kind of a setup to introduce. Okay. A conversation between two women where it's not a female cop who's like one of the stars of the show interrogating or questioning a suspect or a witness. A conversation between two women where they both have names and are significant characters on the show. A fat, middle-aged, or traditionally not attractive woman who's a significant positive character. Okay. Women on a show who aren't strippers or hookers. Oh. A work group with more than one woman. And by work group, I don't mean a group of strippers or hookers because I've noticed a huge amount of sex workers. I'm calling them hookers for the basis of, because I'm not talking about real life people. I'm talking about TV shows because I've also noticed a huge amount of shows, both US and UK have plots that revolve around strip clubs and prostitution. How else are they going to show half-dressed women? Right. They're all very attractive um, young women who look great and it's obviously a in fact I would like to see one of those shows if they do have a plot around that to have the cops and stuff interviewing the women when the women are wearing just like sweats and stuff and are on the job and no shit and there isn't someone or there isn't someone in the background practicing or dancing half dressed and there isn't all this leering but anyway yeah a work group even a cop group if it's a cop show with more than one woman or a normal representation of women that you would have in normal life a girlfriend that's the same age or older than a male protagonist and they have a positive relationship because the rare time you do have a girlfriend or wife or partner who's the same age or older it's a negative relationship she's usually nagging him and whining about his job right And a strong female character who doesn't become the love interest of the male protagonist. Those are just some things to keep in mind. The one show I can say none of those things happen is called The Midwife, which mom makes me watch every week. Yeah, (laughs) A bunch of nuns and their midwives and nurses and nuns and stuff. So I guess that's a pretty positive one as far as the test goes. I was certainly an exception to the rule. And also a lot of the British police procedurals like happy valley uh, no i'm not saying a lot of them but the ones right. i like happy valley she's middle age regular looking and her sister broad church kind of uh, you really. would have to watch it because you would yes. think on some shows oh yeah that one does and then you watch yeah. i've watched six episodes of shetland since then based on an Anne cleaves books written yeah. by a woman where the junior cop is female and he has a teenage daughter And there was on six episodes so far, there was one conversation between two women and it was, you know, two teenage girls and one ended up being the murder victim Ah. shortly after. Um, The one about older man, younger woman, some tweet, which I've tried muting this conversation now because I've gotten so much response to it and Mm -hmm. I should just delete my tweet. I wouldn't delete it. I would just when you're scrolling down, you know how there's always ads for stuff. There was an ad for some 
show. I don't even know what it is because I'm sorry if you're a Marvel Universe fan. I'm not. It's Jeremy Renner and Haley Steinfeld. And I just wrote something like, how come the guy is always at least 20 years older than the woman? And I have gotten so much blowback from that. Besides that, I said, I'm never going to watch this, but why is the guy? And then, well, he's obviously her mentor. Well, blah, 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 blah. So I was like, I'm not responding. Then I finally responded. And I said, even if he's her mentor and that's not a romantic, I'm glad it's not a romantic relationship, although who knows it could go there. Right. But even if he's her mentor, how come that it's always a guy? And then I got a bunch of blowback. And the thing is, even though it's not a love interest, it's a, a guy with a female 20 years how to be a superhero right 20 years his junior because the whole point is that that only young attractive women are interesting on the screen exactly and that's what the point is you did nothing wrong by pointing that out and no the, the only is, wrong thing i did was picking and saying on a marble universe thing well, where- was, anytime you stumble into comic book land <laughs> or anything to do with comic books gaming Star anything Trek. like this you have a huge hugely male audience who are in worlds that objectify women exactly and are documented as being sexist and misogynistic um, exactly. and attacking women who try to get jobs in those industries and stuff so that's the kind of reaction or have a get. shit fit when like doctor who is a woman for once anyways so i have two updates Ooh, a short one and a long oh i've one. got one too so in episode 98 it was about the senseless death of charlie howard who was a young gay man he lived in bangor maine for a very short time in 1984 he was thrown off a bridge and died. He was originally from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And just recently, a bench was put up in his honor. It's a granite bench that says, I am what I am. His favorite song from La Cage Folles, and we talk about it in the episode, it has his name and it says 19... 19- I was trying to remember when he was born. I think it was like 61. I think it was around the same Yes, 1961 to 1984. And it's in Portsmouth's Commercial Alley. And I'm not sure where that is, but it's downtown Portsmouth, which is very big. Portsmouth, New Hampshire. So yeah, he was from, he went to Portsmouth High School. He was teased a lot and bullied in high school because he was openly gay. And I graduated from high school in 1983 and we talked about it in the episode and there were a couple openly gay kids in my school but it was very very difficult for any of them anyone to be gay back then openly gay in high schools high school's hard enough and I'm not saying I was like a great friend to all of them. I I wasn't yelling slurs at people, but I probably you know well I was the same nice age as, as him be. obviously not at the same high school but there was, there were no, that I can remember openly gay kids, male or female, although obviously there were kids that everybody talked about. So anyways, that was my update, just that that bench is there. I'm going to send you a picture and we can post it on our Once site. we got, we're having a data issue. I think it has to do with the GoDaddy WordPress breach. Hopefully Sucks. it'll be fixed. But anyway, I have two updates. One Ooh. very short one. Okay. One longer one. So remember a few episodes I said they'd found bones on Loon Mountain in New Hampshire during a construction dig? Mm-hmm. And people were wondering oh, yes. if it could be Maura Murray. Well, it turns out they're at least 80 years old and more likely as much as 300 years old. Ooh. So they are not Maura Murray. 
They were found in September on Loon Mountain in New Hampshire. It's all a cover-up. Which is on Route 112, I know. About 20 miles east of where Mora disappeared in February 2003. They used radiocarbon dating and found there's a 95% probability the bones, and they're bone fragments, and I don't know if they're... Maybe it's an old grave or something. You're right. But I was going to say, I don't know how big the fragments are. They were big enough for somebody to notice what they were. But anyway, there's a 95% probability they're from between 1774 and 1942. And a 68% probability they're from between 1718 and 1893. I'm not great at math. So I don't know why you have those different date ranges and what those probabilities mean. They're from either a woman or a small man. And police will not be investigating i'm sure all the maura murray obsessives are relieved because this keeps their nutty theories alive she obviously started a new life well she obviously traveled back in time (laughs) 300 years where she was killed by possibly native americans or pioneers or aliens (laughs) who buried her on the mountain um but anyway my longer update is to episode 46 what happened to the turpin family oh yeah which is our most popular ever episode if you go by downloads our second most popular is Kyron Horman, um, Aww, which listed. But boy. I'm not sure why the Turpin thing, unless it got shared, but it still continues to get listens. My only source for this update is an episode of the TV news show 2020 that aired November 19th. I was guessing others would follow up, and I even renewed my Los Angeles Times subscription, which I first got when we did this episode in March 2018 and had a few months ago, mm-hmm. I was shredding subscriptions and got rid of, but I do love the Los Angeles Times and so mm-hmm. I've renewed it again. But so far, the only article they've had is an article about the show, which come on, Los Angeles Times. Um, it's easier. They can just watch the show. Anyway, I was going to talk uh, for a couple minutes about the special but 2020 actually broke some news about an hour and 10 minutes into it that could have been a special of its own. A quick recap, the Turpins were a family of 13 kids whose parents, (sighs) David and Louise, for decades abused them, withheld food, didn't let them bathe, kept them tied up and isolated from the world, and a lot of other stuff that you can listen to episode 46. They got free when Jordan Turpin, the eighth oldest, escaped when she was 17 the day before the family was going to move from Northern California to Oklahoma. And she got help. And if you haven't listened, like I said, to episode 46, I suggest listening I re-listened today and found we had a lot of good stuff. Um, Of course we did. We got the story right. And this show didn't have a ton more details about what happened to the kids and stuff that we didn't. But back in March 2018, when we did that show, a couple months after the family was rescued, it was January 2018, she escaped. And the parents, by the way, have both gotten life in prison (sighs) since then. We were under the impression the kids were going to be taken care of. Donations were rolling in. And while the oldest two were 30 and 29 at the time, all of them needed life skills, Mm. help, and support. And the message at the time was they were getting it. I think about $600,000 plus worth of donations came in. And the news you heard was they were getting all this help and blah, blah, blah. Well, the actual news that 2020 broke is that they haven't been getting that. They're basically ripped off re-victimized have seen very little of the six hundred thousand dollars that was raised they were appointed a guardian through the court system by the county which i believe is riverside county in the los angeles area the guardian a young woman 
who they show a selfie of making poochie lips, and you know how I love poochie lips selfies, um, is also a real estate broker, which is neither what? here or there, <laughs> but I, I don't know if she's like a guardian ad litem. Like how did they pick them? I don't know. Oh, 2020 okay. didn't say one of my issues with the 2020 show is I'll get into my issues okay. with it, but it needed to be more in depth. But apparently yeah. the seven older kids, the ones who are over 18, had almost zero access to that money, including <sighs> when the oldest one, Joshua, who got a job, asked if he could get a bike for transportation to the job. And she denied that because she was in control of the money. When they asked her for help with things like learning how to use public transportation or even how to safely cross streets, which they didn't know how to do. Oh, I mean, when Jordan escaped, she didn't yeah. even know what a sidewalk was. She, their guardian, told them she wasn't going to help them, and she told them to Google it. Oh, my they God. They lived in squalor, in crime-ridden areas. One of them was insul- assaulted. They were practically homeless. The information around their money, which people donated, is protected by court order. So when 2020 asked questions, they got the runaround. The Guardian was supposed to give the kids, and I'm going to call them kids, even though they're adults, it's just easier, um, resources and support on healthcare, nutrition, housing, education, and finance, but did nothing to help them, according to the siblings, who I believe. They were very honest kids. The younger kids were put in foster care where they were also re-victimized. One was abused by a foster parent who apparently had a history of serial abuse of kids. Now the four youngest who are still foster care age are apparently in a home where they're happy. Jordan, who was one of the two kids interviewed on 2020, Uh they don't say which one, but I think it was her, was told by a foster parent at one point, now I understand why your mother chained you up. Oh, my God. Jordan recently got out of foster care, as did another sibling, and they were sent into the world with nowhere to live, no money, and no life skills. So that feel-good tale that we were spun back in the spring of 2018 was bullshit, and apparently nobody followed up. Nobody has looked into it. Nobody's asked any questions until 2020 did for this episode. Oh, my God. Funny how the parents both got life in prison for what I totally agree is horrific abuse, but then the system that was supposed to protect them pretty much let them continue to be abused in a variety of ways and didn't do what it was supposed to do to help them. Well, it's not as horrific as what the parents did. The parents have been vilified as evil and monsters, but what do we call the system that was supposed to protect them? And hey... How about that $600,000? No shit. It's hard to understand why it's three and a half years later and the county is only finding out about the problem with the money and the Guardian now because of 2020. That Guardian (sighs) was fired by the county a day after 2020 chased her around in their typical TV news way (laughs) looking for answers. I'm hoping the LA Times is delving in because I'd like as you asked more answers like how this young woman was chosen how do they choose and how she was overseen the rest of the 2020 show was pretty good with the original 911 call jordan made Mm, on a phone she snuck out of the house and it was an old um phone one of those ones that you could only use to call 911 people couldn't call you back or anything so she had to get it right she was extremely lucky and i think this is one of the best things about the show that she got an understanding and empathetic dispatcher exactly. who believed her and immediately 
cued in to the fact that this young woman wasn't going to be able to give her all the information she needed. Exactly. Like she asked Jordan if she was on a corner and Jordan wasn't sure. Yeah. She said, is there a pole with two signs on the top? Yeah. And then she told her to go stand by the stop sign, which Jordan recognized. So the dispatcher, like sometimes you see stories where a dispatcher is just totally clueless. This dispatcher and Jordan says, said on 2020, if she'd been sent back home, she probably would be dead. Her parents uh-huh. were planning to move to Oklahoma the next day. And cops said later some of the kids were in such bad shape that they may not have even made it through the trip to Oklahoma. Oh, and I wanted to say, too, that the deputy who volunteered, he was near the end of his shift, who came to answer the dispatcher's call, was also very understanding and empathetic. He believed Jordan's story. He seemed to realize, too, that she wasn't just some troubled kid or something like that making Uh up a story. And he treated her very gently and he and the dispatcher were both great and jordan's a real inspiration the kids were supposedly homeschooled but they knew very little for instance she was 17 she knew the alphabet but when they asked her to spell her middle name elizabeth she couldn't spell it she didn't know what a sidewalk was or that she should be on it instead of in the street she didn't know what a street sign was as we mentioned since some of the older kids were allowed to have smartphones the kids did have windows though very limited ones into the world i need to know more but i haven't watched the, much of the special well, so. yeah you, well you should and i'm not going to say okay. everything that was on the show okay. but they needed to be able to get into contact with the parents who were frequently not home and so they had smartphones but jordan would sneak the phones and became obsessed with with Justin Bieber. Yes. And it actually helped her understanding of things. She watched all his videos, including ones that he talked on and was interviewed on. And one that particularly struck her was him saying something like, love comes first. It's not if you do this, then I'll love you. But you love somebody no matter what they do. Justin. And that was totally different from what her parents were saying to her. And it made her start thinking that the world outside of the very isolated one she had lived in was different than the one she lived in and that she wanted to get out. And it's really interesting watching her try to communicate with the deputy with her really, really limited vocabulary. She has some, like, she sounds really articulate at some points. Like she says, we live in filth. Yes, yes. But- then, you know, he asks her if she's on medication and she doesn't know what medication yes, is. Yes. She made it through high school in one year after being freed, even with her limited education. So that tells you something. I'm not doing an NNW rating here on the documentary. And oh, and by the way, episode 46 on the Turpins was our first NNW episode. Oh, episode we did them. interesting tie in. But, but I will say the show is worth watching, though I take off, if I were doing an NNW, I take off major points for repetitiveness. It's the kind of thing where they repeat huge chunks of what you just saw before the commercials and when you come back for the commercials and you feel like you're just going over and over the same oh, thing. I hate that. Like they have, you know, the whole 911 call, interviews with Jordan and her oldest sister, Jennifer, and also the police body cam film from when they first went into the house and stuff but they keep like teasing it and repeating what they're going to show commercial break towards the end when they're going to start showing the body cam stuff and then the whole show is the cops knocking on the door and talking to the turpins and blah 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 parts of which you already saw then they go to another commercial break and then you know it's that and when we first set up the nnw it was that kind of repetitiveness 
yes exactly um, it's nuts that said it's definitely worth seeing it has two count them crying male cops which we (laughs) always like there's a lot of ways of b-roll footage you know people sitting down and clipping their microphones on and that shit which i'm tired of and i think there needs to be more focus on the fact that louise turpin the mother was sexually abused her entire childhood and then got with david when she was 15 and he was 21 Mm -hmm. i'm not saying that she shouldn't have to take responsibility for what she did to her kids but she was obviously severely mentally ill and abused herself and david who wasn't home a lot of the time is obviously on the psychopath coercive control spectrum and definitely is to blame for both her abuse and the abuse she meted out to the kids he was at work with a good paying job spent a lot of time there he was an engineer but he was obviously lord of the manor and controlled everything can you imagine if he was your co-worker and you found this out oh gross well i you know the whole bull haircut i would have ah i know from the start but i think people tend to blame women in those situations much more readily than they blame the man but cults and large house of horror abuse families are almost always headed by men yes we talk about that a lot on episode 46 so i won't go into a lot of detail on it except to end with this one of the crying cops says basically there's no answer to why on this stuff Mm. and he's been a cop for 30 or 40 years and i say well yeah there is when people don't get coercive control, miss red flags and ignore, for instance, early child sexual abuse that mm-hmm. Louise endured and think it's cute and funny when a girl who's 14, 15, 16 marries a man, a grown adult man. Ugh. When governments don't take homeschooling seriously enough to make sure it's being done right and the kids are getting educated, then that's a problem. As we said on episode 46, and the 2020 kind of touches on a lot of people's um neighbors and stuff saw things that should have raised red flags you know neighbors and other people but as i said three years ago i can't imagine if someone called the cops and said that family has a lot of kids and they're never outside and they seem to sleep during the day and do stuff at night and the kids are really skinny and dirty i can see cops saying yeah so there are a lot of things that were missed but you can't really blame the neighbors it's up to the safety nets in place that are not taken seriously and ignored. I think what happened in the last three years, as far as those kids falling through the cracks goes, just shows how seriously flawed no the system shit. is. And I don't mean that there aren't safeguards in place. I mean, the give a shit level is not there. Exactly. It's easy to say that county governments are overburdened, but this was a hugely high profile case that came with a shitload of money. Don't uh, know. So don't tell me someone couldn't have paid more attention, particularly given the fact that one of the big criticisms was nobody was paying attention the first 30 years. No shit. So don't blame the neighbors who thought the family was odd, but didn't do anything. One of the things that makes me angry about it too, which you could say this, I guess, about anyone, but even the adult kids, they're all so vulnerable. They didn't even know to say, hey, how come we're not getting any of that money? I mean, they didn't, uh, how to even advocate for themselves. Right, they needed somebody assigned to them who could advocate for them, who was an aggressive, stupid, not not some coochie lip lip. selfie girl, you know, it it blows my mind. I want to know how they picked the- I do too. I want to know more about that. How she got appointed. It's easy for everybody to point fingers at the Turpins because they were so horrific and abused the kids and at neighbors and shit. But then people that were supposed to help bad. Yeah, this is just as bad because then the kids teach them how to use the bus. Is there any? Are there any checks and balances? I mean, is she like in sole control? I'd like. That's a good. That's a good question, and I would like to see. I'm glad 2020 broke it. 
but yes. they could have they could have done more reporting and had less repetitive stuff, B-roll stuff. Well, it's more um, than just a like a you know news info news story. But it kills me that nobody apparently in the last three and a half years has asked has followed about up it. And, yeah. Speaking of not taking domestic violence seriously, I'm not going to talk too much about this because it's still just started. But that guy that drove into that Christmas parade and killed now it's six people that have died. He was out on a thousand dollars bail because he attacked his partner. I don't know if she was his wife or girlfriend. He attacked her, drove off. Then he drove back and ran her over. And then Mm -hmm. he went to jail for that. He didn't kill her. He injured her. He got a thousand dollars bail and got out. We don't take domestic violence. Right. And we talk on this show sometimes about bail reform and how ridiculous it is that people can't get out on bail. And as I said to you the other day, if he'd had a pocket full of drugs, he would have been in jail. And there are conservative lawmakers in Wisconsin where this happened now who are saying we need to increase bail. What they need to do is not to mass incarceration. What needs to happen is that he has a long string of domestic abuse exactly. and assault, and that's what needs to be taken seriously. Yeah. If he had, yes, if he, he had does. a couple, if he had a couple cubes of crack or whatever the drug of choice is these days in his pocket, he'd be in jail. He would yes, have gotten a very high bail, and he'd be in jail. Or if he had stolen something, right? But because he tried to run over his partner after assaulting her, and had many assault convictions in the past it wasn't taken seriously and that's the that's the big issue that domestic violence is mm-hmm. not taken seriously as a red flag and he deliberately it wasn't like he was oh, being chased was by the cop. he deliberately targeted and the huge majority of people he hit were women and children i know anyways so so you have i have two main related ones oh they're kind of two mini-ish but they're a little longer than mini so it's a double episode kind of okay well i'm excited you can play the main song if you like i will Okay. And by the way, we got that off main.gov. Yeah. If you want to listen to it more. Yeah. There's two versions. Yeah. So they're both unsolved, but Uh, spoiler, I was thinking of doing originally was pick 10 of the unsolved murders and do like a a compilation, kind of like the Appalachian trail one, but then some of them, I found a lot of information. My sources for the first story were mostly Bangor Daily News and Associated Press for older information, but only because that's what's on newspapers.com. So I don't know where they were all, the bylines were all Associated Press and they were in the Bangor Daily News. I also get information from WCSH TV and WMTW TV and WGME TV, all in Portland, Maine. Uh, The Lewiston Sun Journal, those last ones for newer information. Unfortunately, the library, the Portland Public Library, it's too hard with COVID. Fucking COVID. I know. God damn it. So I had to rely on online sources. I'm not going to apologize, but I do feel like that both of my stories would have been more in depth if Mm -hmm. I could have done better research. The first story came up on my radar because the victim has the same last name as us. 
Mm. Although we aren't related to her husband from whom she got her name, uh, Dottie Milliken. Dottie Milliken's murder had its 45th anniversary this past November 6th. And can I just say in Maine, there are Millikens who are like go back. It's like an old Yankee name. But our name, our great grandfather came from County Clare, Ireland. And when he got on the boat, it was M-E-L-I-C-A-N or the phonetic version of whatever the Gaelic was. And when he got off the boat, it was M-I-L-L-I-K-E-N. Oh, so like I said, Dottie Milliken. It was 45th anniversary, November 6th. I saw her picture and name on TV and I said, wait a minute. I don't remember that one. Some of them you heard like we talked about Joyce McLean. That's the face and name I remember. And that's thanks to her mom. You got to be a past, I think. The weekend starting November 6th, 1976 was a busy one for police in Androscoggin County, Maine. There were two murders in Lewiston and one in North Jay. We've talked before about the relatively low murder rate here in Maine, usually less than 20 per year now. Back 45 years ago, it was usually more than 30. And yet people think crime is getting worse. Mm -hmm. But three presumably unrelated murders in the span of 24 hours is a lot, even for a largest city. And also when I was researching this, although this has really nothing to do with anything, I realized the calendar that year was the same as this year. Ooh. So like November 6th was a Friday. Ooh. The murder victim in North Jay was Michael Termin, reportedly a resident of the YMCA in Auburn, Maine. A woman who was unnamed in the article was being held in jail and it was as reported as a domestic dispute. Mm. Another victim that weekend was Robert B. Shorty McBride, from <laughs> 69 from Springvale, Maine who was a stable hand at the Lewiston Fairgrounds. Shorty was found in his cot in his room at the Fairgrounds stable at about 9 a.m. Saturday, November 7th. He died of a massive head wound. The weapon was a wood plank found on the floor of his room. A 20-year-old Lewiston man, no name given, was arrested at 10 p.m. Saturday night for Shorty McBride's killing. At about 4.40 or 4.55 a.m., depending on the source, Saturday, November 7th, a dog walker or a paper boy depending on the source, maybe it was a paperboy walking a dog, found the body of Dorothy Milliken crumpled on the sidewalk in front of Beale's laundromat at the corner of Lisbon Street and Dumont Avenue in downtown Lewiston. Dorothy, known as Dottie, had died of blunt force trauma to the head. The weapon wasn't present on the scene and has never been found. Police told the newspapers at the time that Dottie's murder did not appear related to Shorty McBride's murder, though both victims had died from the same type of attack. That's not the same laundromat that what's her name? No, it wasn't. I think hers was on Sabata Street. Oh, okay. Kimberly Dobby. Dorothy was the mother of three and was doing laundry late that night. She often did laundry in the morning with her young daughter, Tanya, helping her. But this time she decided to leave her home after her husband went to bed at about 11 p.m. Dottie sometimes went to the laundromat in the wee hours while her husband and kids slept. It was the easiest way to get it done without distractions. And as a frequent laundromat customer myself, I know I liked going late at night because there would be few, if any, people there. And I wouldn't have to fight for machines or the Mm. folding table. Dottie had given birth to a baby boy that summer and Monday, November 8th, her maternity leave was coming to an end and she would be going back to her job. I looked everywhere and found nothing that said what her job was. For some reason, I have dental hygienists in the back of my mind. So I don't know if I read that somewhere. I'm sure if I could have accessed the archives of the Lewiston Sun Journal, I would have had more details. So I'm very frustrated. There was 
clean laundry half folded in the laundromat when her body was found. The money she was using was there. She'd left a note on a broken washing machine that she tried to use. Everything pointed to something or someone interrupting her. There was no evidence inside the building. It appeared to police that Dottie had been lured outside somehow. Someone had gotten her to come out in the street and then she was attacked. In December 1976, the Bangor Daily News had an article about how the number of, quote, impersonal slayings had gone up in recent months. They reported that since October, there had been 13 homicides in Maine. The article pointed out that homicide in Maine is usually between people who know each other, something we've talked about on past episodes. Mm -hmm. But in 1976, 70-80% of the homicides were, quote, senseless and unprovoked attacks unquote, by unknown assailants, as opposed to the normal statistics, which is about 75% quoting the article passion slayings Mm. in which a quarrel, this is what the article called them, passion slayings in which a quarrel between two parties, such as a husband and wife lead to a slaying, end quote. The article reported since 1970, the average homicide rate in Maine was 30 to 35 per year. There were only 26 in 1976 as of mid-December when the article was written. So it was a slower year, but now that would be a fairly That would be a lot, yeah. Maine Attorney General Richard Cohen told the Bangor Daily News that the first six months of 1976 had very few homicides, and then the last half of the year, they were more concentrated than usual. Still, not as I said, 1976 would have been below average for that era. 20 of the 26 killings had been, quote, solved and that someone was in custody. Of the unsick solved that year, you may recognize some of the names from past episodes. Mm. James Cassidy, a Boston area banker, was found dead, cause not given in the article, in his car in Amherst on April 8th. Shirley Baldwin was killed in Lisbon Falls on April 4th. Blanche Kimball, Mm-hmm. Blanche Kimball was shot in Augusta on June 12th, episode 26. I may have even quoted from that article. Oh, you may have. You are in, in that episode. Yeah. Dorothy Milliken, who I'm talking about right now in this episode. Janet Baxter shot and put in the trunk of her car in Norwich Walk on November 3rd, episode 62. Mm-hmm. And Raul Schwartz, who died in an arson fire in Bridgeton, November 11th. Gerald F. Boudelier, director of the Maine State Police Criminal Division, told the paper, investigative analysis indicates that there doesn't seem to be any common denominator that is causing this current surge of homicides, but it does appear we are having an increase in the type of murder where the perpetrator is unknown to the victim. And this is me again. This could be true, but I would argue that some of those unsolved murders could well prove to be committed by people the victims knew. And they ended up being such but our understanding of domestic killings has changed over the years yes. too and i made fun of him in the blanche kimball episode yes Bo- sure. over the years there hadn't been much reported about the Dottie milliken murder in 2006 the family established a five thousand dollar reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Dottie's killer on valentine's day 2015 peter milliken Dottie's son who was just a baby when she was killed He was born August 15th, 1976. Hmm. He died at age 38 in Bangor. I don't know what his cause of death was. I just happened to find his obituary. Later that year, WGME Channel 13 revisited the case as part of a series on cold cases in Maine. The Maine State Police had just created the cold case unit. Also, Dottie's family raised the reward to $10,000 at that point. At that time, Tanya Ross, her daughter, who was seven at the time of her mother's death, told reporters, I always thought she was going to come back. And of course, she didn't. 
Larry Gilbert was the Lewiston police detective who investigated the case all those years ago. He said in the report, every time I drive by there, I think of it. There were a couple of people of interest, but you know, we were never able to take it to the next step. When I retired as, as police chief in 1994, that was the biggest regret of my whole career that we could not clear this case. A young mother to be taken away just for doing her laundry for her family. This should not happen. Larry Gilbert also said he was hoping with the advances of DNA technology, the case might be solved. But as we know, since DNA technology did not exist back then, the evidence taken and saved was not always the same thing the investigators might collect today or see hmm. as important. There has been a flurry of reports recently as the 45th anniversary approaches with no answers. The state police detective handling the case since 2012 is Michael Chavez. In a recent news release, he wrote, these kinds of cases are the most challenging to work on. Over the years, a number of other Maine state police detectives have been working on this case, and we have still yet to uncover both the motivation for the crime and the persons responsible. Mm. Maine state police detective Scott Goslin, who worked the case from 2007 to 2012, told WCSH, I think what's missing is the piece of information that we need, possibly from the public that might be able to give it to us. Maybe they've been afraid to come forward in the past, and we'd love to listen to them. We'd love to talk to them. Somebody should have seen something, and we just haven't gotten that piece of information that puts us there yet, especially on a Friday night, especially during 1976. Lisbon Street was a wild ride. Lisbon Street is and was the major street in downtown Lewiston. Lewiston is a city that was built around the mills on the Androscoggin River. It is now the second largest city in Maine, which isn't saying much since the population is less than 40,000. But then you combine it with Auburn, which is right across the mm -hmm. river or whatever. It's always been a gritty working class city, despite being home to the prestigious Bates College. <laughs> Bates College started as a seminary in 1855 and became Bates College in 1870. And it was the first co-educational school in New England. Oh. Bates is an oasis of gentility in an otherwise rough place. Somebody was making fun of Lewiston online, too, when I was doing this research. And Actually, they were, had a Lew stupid name for it. Dirty Louie, maybe? Yeah. Um, Lewiston is going through quite a renaissance. I worked in Lewiston in the early 1990s, less than 20 years after Daddy's murder. The building I worked in was on Lisbon Street downtown. A lot of the buildings were empty back then. The mills that dominated the riverfront at the turn of the 20th century were all emptying out in the latter part of the 1900s. The shoe manufacturing plants were closing and going overseas. Downtown Lewiston was run down and crummy. It's had somewhat of a resurgence in recent years. The empty mill buildings are being used for business and stuff, but it still has a ways to go. And well, at the turn of the 20th century, it had like 130,000 people. In Lisbon Street, it would surprise you now. It's an interesting city. I mean, it's, it's very interesting. Oh, it's nice. very rich ethnic heritage. Yes, it does. In the 1970s and into the 1980s, Lisbon Street had bars and head shops and porn shops. If you wanted to buy drugs, there are people selling drugs there, whatever you were looking for. We used to go down there to go to the head shop. If people don't know, head shops used to sell drug paraphernalia. I don't yeah, know. If they and Grateful them. Dead stickers. <laughs> yeah. Tie dyed stuff. Yeah. On a Friday night, there would have been a lot of people around. Beale's laundromat was not in the congested downtown area of Lisbon Street. It was on the way out of town going southeast. Which is not to say it was a sparsely populated area. There were a lot of houses and apartment buildings, but there wasn't a lot of walking traffic. Still, according to Detective Scott Goslin of the Maine State Police, there were reports from police 
as well as witnesses who saw Dottie in the laundromat that night until about 2.30 a.m. The building had large windows on the front and side, so people going by would have seen her doing her wash in the well-lit interior. And as I said, there are many homes and apartments around. There were a lot of people to talk to who might have information that would be helpful to the investigation. And they did do a lot of canvassing, apparently. Her time of death, based on witness statements, was estimated to be between 2.30 and 4.30 a.m., November 7th. Detective Goslin said, there's not a shortage of information. There's a deluge of information. How does this case go unsolved there for 45 years? Yes, Scott. How does Mm. it? Detective Goslin said there are cases that cops always remember, quote, I think of the family every time November 6th rolls around. Detective Michael Chavez said in his statement, there's no doubt in my mind that the person who did this was so consumed by anger that they made a conscious effort to brutally strike down an unarmed woman without thinking twice about the consequences. To make things worse, this person had the audacity to just walk away, which left the family consumed by anger, regret, and sorrow. When Tanya was 18, she started doing her own investigation. I've come up with some information and I passed it on, she told News 13 in 2015. Quote, I didn't know what happened to her and I needed to know everything. I questioned hundreds of people, read all the files, saw all the pictures. It's imprinted on your mind for the rest of your life, Tanya told WCSH. But Tanya and her sister and others still had no answers, which would mean everything to them. Quote, it would bring peace to every one of us. We've accepted what has happened, but it would bring peace to my family. That void, it's a void, always will be. Tanya Ross said in the Lewiston Sun Journal, your first boyfriend, first school dance, you get married, have children, all those big life moments that come along and there's a void because you wish you could talk to your mom and share those moments with her. Even the everyday things, it never goes away. It never goes away. It's time I deserve, my sister and my family deserve closure. And it's not fair that the person who did this has just gone on through life without a conscience. Like it's okay because it's not okay. It's not okay to take a life. They should come clean. They should get it off their chest and bring me, my sister and family closure. I don't hate the person who did it. I forgive the person who did it, but it's time for us to know what happened. Tanya told WCSH, given the brutality of the murder, I feel in my heart it's somebody that she knew quite well. Tanya also said she fought for her life till the very last minute. Second, in my heart, I feel like I've solved this. It's a matter of getting that person who did this to come forward. One of Tanya's last memories of her mother was from the night Dottie was killed. Tanya told WCSH that she was at her aunt's house And Dottie wanted Tanya to come home with her, and Tanya wanted to stay where she was. The next morning, the news of her mother's death was broken to the young girl. Tanya said, I don't think it's possible for a seven-year-old to truly comprehend what somebody being murdered is. It would bring peace to my heart to know that the person finally admitted it, because in my heart, I know who they are. Detective Goslin seems to agree with Tanya Ross's theory. He told WCSH that he believes the murderer was someone Dottie knew. Someone saw her in the laundromat that night and got her to come outside where she was attacked. Detective Goslin said the other possibility is that a stranger lured her out by saying he had car trouble or was hurt or on some pretext, but he thinks that's less likely. I think that the police have a pretty good idea who did it, but they don't have the evidence they need. That's why Detective Goslin is convinced it was someone Dottie knew. He told WCSH that they have about five persons of interest. When asked if these persons of interest knew each other, he said they probably did back then, but he doesn't think they hang around with each other now. Mm. Detective Goslin was asked 
if Dottie was killed by someone's fist or feet or a weapon. And he said, police believe it was an object, though no weapon was found. He also told WCSH he felt that they were so close to closing the case, they just needed that last piece of missing information. When asked if he was waiting for someone to come forward, he said maybe one final interview with that person would give them what they need to arrest someone. According to her daughter, Dottie was quick-witted and feisty and loved her family. I wish I could have found more out more about Dottie. If her murderer was someone she knew, then there are clues in who she was, what she did for work, etc. And I also wish I knew more about her because she deserves to re- be remembered as more than an unsolved case. There seems to be only one photo of her, a posed portrait with her two daughters. Once I'm able to do more research, I may do an update on Dottie just to fill in some of her background. Oh, good. The other day, an anonymous donor raised the award to $15,000. dollars mm. And if anyone knows anything, they should call the Maine State Police, 207-228-0857. You may have said this, and and I missed it or something, but I want to say if people are wondering, laundromats, both back then and now, are unattended. So it's not like there was somebody working there. Some of them have attendance, but yeah, that one wasn't. And the one I used to go to was unattended. You know, even if you're on a street that's well-traveled, which the one I went to was, some it only takes a split second for somebody right, to for hurt somebody. you. That's true. Are we ready for my second one? Yes. My second cold case is from 1989, and it's Pamela Webb. You'll be upset about a certain thing that I was when we get to it. I'm already upset about it. Most of the information I got was online at newspapers.com. And it was from the Bangor Daily News again, although, like I said, all the articles are from Associated Press, so they're from all over. There were some information from the Portland Press Herald, and I also got information from two different civil actions that I found on Justia.com. Pamela Webb's story started out as a missing person mystery. I'll give you more details as I go along, but this is one thing I remember about it. Her truck was found on the side of the highway, but apparently no one saw what happened to her. I remember riding in a car with my boyfriend at the time while the search for Pamela was going on. We were driving down the highway, going through Portland, and there was a broken down car on the side of the road in an inconvenient spot. I made some remark about how dangerous that was. Joe, my boyfriend, said, what? And I said, that car on the side of the road. And he said, where? And I said, we just passed it. How could you not have seen it? Mm. And he's like, I don't know. And I said, okay, I see. It's broad daylight. And you didn't even notice a car a few feet away as we passed by. Now I understand why no one saw what happened to that woman who disappeared. And of course, that devolved into an argument because he thought I was criticizing him, which I was. No, you weren't. But I was also commenting on the inattentiveness of people. Yes. And we'll get into it. Yeah. Let's tell Pamela's story. On Sunday, about 10 a.m., July 2nd, 1989. Maine State Police received a call from a man who told them his girlfriend was missing. Pamela Webb, who is 32, left her home in Winthrop, Maine at about 9 p.m. on Saturday, July 1st, to travel to Josh Cloud's house in Mason, New Hampshire. Mason is a small town west of Nashua, just north of the Massachusetts line. Winthrop, Maine is a small town between Moranicook and Anabesca Lakes, just west of Augusta. And I've thought of buying a house there because it's it's not expensive Mm. and it's a very cute town. It's right near where I live. It would normally be about a three plus hour drive from Winthrop to Mason. Pamela was a quality control inspector at Digital Equipment Corporation in Augusta, which is now long gone. She lived with her dog, 
but otherwise alone, in a mobile home in Winthrop near her folks' house. Later that Sunday, state police found Pamela's 1971 blue Chevy truck pickup on the side of the main turnpike near Bitterford at mile 30.4. Her passenger side rear tire was flat. The spare tire was leaning against the tailgate. Her dog was in the front of the truck. And no one reported what kind of dog it was or its name or anything. You know, I'm very, very. When I was an editor, any reporter who worked under me knew that you always get the dog's name and its breed. Although I did not listen. There are a couple podcasts and stuff on this. And I think somebody said it was a beagle, but I don't know. I remember it as a beagle because at the time I was working for the union leader in Manchester, New Hampshire. And a statewide newspaper, well, and we covered this extensively. Yes, I'm sure you did. The Maine State Police reported that they collected evidence at the scene, but wouldn't say what they found. They also used sniffer dogs to see if Pamela was in the area, but there was no sign of her. Steve McCoslin, mm-hmm. spokesman for the Maine State Police, said evidence at the scene indicates that there may be suspicious circumstances to her disappearance. Whether she is left under her own will or left under duress, we're really not drawing that conclusion yet. Police hoped witnesses would come forward. By Tuesday, July 4th, police were reporting that they had found blood in Pamela's truck. Steve McCausland told reporters that it had been determined the blood was human, but further testing would be needed to find out whose blood it was. The dogs and National Guard helicopters were searching a two-mile radius around where the truck was found. A lot of witnesses had called into police saying they'd seen Pamela's truck on the side of their highway. But as Steve McCausland said, we still have not heard from any callers who have seen the woman. Found in the truck were Pamela's dog, her clothes and stuff, her purse, and a Bible. There was money in her truck, so robbery most likely wasn't a motive. Steve McCausland said, we are very seriously concerned about the well-being of Pamela Webb. We may be dealing with, we may be dealing with something far more serious than we first thought. There's no signs that anything was disturbed, but we strongly believe she may have been abducted. Pamela's boyfriend, Josh Cloud, said he'd spoken to Pamela Saturday night and expected her to arrive by 1 a.m. I know I don't need to remind everyone, but I will. There weren't any cell phones. She probably called from her house when she left, just like we used to do. Pamela's uncle, Carlton Webb of Winthrop, said, This is so much out of her character. She's a real sincere girl, deeply religious girl. She's awful trusting and maybe too much so. By Thursday, July 6th. Dozens of people were searching the woods around the main turnpike from Biddeford to York. Maine State Police, fishing game wardens, workers from the Brunswick Naval Air Station all joined in looking for clues. The most important, though, were the tracking dogs. Steve McCausen told reporters, we're looking for clues. There's nothing specific. We want to do a far more intensive search than the initial effort, which focused on a two-mile effort on either side of the truck. A command post had been established at the Maine State Police barracks in Scarborough. Police still had not gotten results back about the blood in the truck. And by Friday, July 7th, my 24th birthday, Steve McCausen told the press, we have been unable to find her blood type. And again, DNA testing was only just beginning. In 1989 in Maine, a sample probably would have been sent out of state and taken months to get results. I don't even think Maine was doing DNA testing back then. They didn't have have their first DNA case till 93 or 94. I'm sure. I mean... The first one in the United States yeah. is probably and like I just 87. Wanna, I just want to say as an aside, 
I've heard twice on podcasts or TV shows, like in the past week, things from the 70s or very early 80s, where they said, and DNA testing took longer back then. And I just want to remind people, the first DNA case was in 1984 in England. And it was a a scientist who was working with DNA who said, let's try it to solve this murder. Joseph Wamba wrote a book Yeah, it's a good book. The best way they had to determine identity was using blood type. They got around this issue by taking samples from Pamela's parents and comparing their blood types to the blood found in the truck. On July 11th, police reported that while they couldn't be 100% sure, both Pamela's parents were type O, the same as the blood in the truck. I just think it's odd that somebody wouldn't know their blood type. I was gonna. I don't want to say anything about her religion, but she's right. Mennonite. Oh, okay, so okay. That might have something okay. to do yeah. with it. By that standard, investigators concluded the blood in the truck probably belonged to Pamela. On Thursday, July 20th, 1989, the Bangor Daily News printed an associated press story out of Rutland, Vermont. A truck driver had been arrested for abducting a woman at a rest stop in Vermont, raping her in the cab of his truck, and then dumping her in New York. Randolph Jacobitz was a 29-year-old truck driver from Schuyler Falls, New York. According to the complaint, a 23-year-old young woman from Burlington had stopped at a rest stop in Westminster, Vermont on Route 91 the night of June 13th. I tried to look up this rest area to see what it looks like today, and I didn't find it, but I found another one. The one I found was in a story from 1986 about a woman who was abducted and stabbed to death and left in the woods. Her car was left at the rest area. That crime has also yet to be solved. Mm. Um, Anyway, that rest area was a simple small building with bathrooms and an outdoor phone and a vending machine, so probably like a lot of small rest areas. Um, and that was all at the same time that they uh, remember the Connecticut Valley. Yes, serial. Well, I'm going to touch on. Oh, that. Okay, so I'm assuming the one in Westminster was similar to the one in the 1986 case. That it was just like a small rest stop. Right. Uh, she stopped to use the restroom. She used the bathroom. She made some phone calls at the phone booth. The next thing she knew, she was knocked to the ground handcuffed and a pillowcase was put over her head after she was raped and sodomized the kidnapper dumped her on the side of the road in the bronx new york at 3 30 in the morning jesus the victim was smart she dug her fingers into the dirt on the floor of the cab so there'd be dirt under her fingernails she also pulled strands of her hair and left them in his truck now remember this was 1989 she probably didn't know anything about dna but she was smart enough to leave evidence she was able to see enough through the pillowcase to describe her attacker, and she picked Randolph Jacobitz out of a photo lineup. Randolph was also a suspect in a 1986 New York rape, and I'm not sure if he was charged with that, but that's how he got in the lineup. Besides that, he was a suspect in a rape in Maine that happened in May of 1989. The victim described a gold chain around the neck of her attacker, a description that matched a gold chain Jacobitz wore. She was also raped, quote, along a main roadside, end quote, according to a story, but the details were very sparse on that mm. case. As for the abduction in Westminster, Vermont, Randolph Jacobitz said he was asleep when the victim was left in the Bronx, but tracking records showed he was in New York at that time, and also a phone call from the phone in Westminster, Vermont, was placed to his home in Schuyler Falls around the same time the victim was at the rest stop. So he called somebody from that same phone. Steve McCausland said, at this point, we are not ruling anything out, and we do want very much to talk to him. The article said that Jacobitz was arrested on Route 89 in Sharon, Vermont. This part of the article was confusing and didn't explain what was going on, but it said, quote, McCausland said 
Two Maine State Police officers in a small airplane followed Jacobitz from Biddeford to White River Junction, Vermont, kept in touch throughout the trip with FBI agents trailing Jacobitz by car, end quote. Now, I'm assuming that this was about the May rape in Maine and the June rape in Vermont, but it doesn't explain why they were tracking him or how they knew he was a suspect. But Hmm. I guess that's another story for another day. A story the next day on July 21st, 1989, the AP said that since Randolph Jacobitz's arrest, Law enforcement officers all over New England were taking another look at their unsolved rapes and murders. Lieutenant Tom Wynn of the New Hampshire State Police said, although there is no evidence to leak Jacobitz with the Connecticut Valley murders, we are checking every lead that comes, end quote. And for more about those murders, see our episode 31. Mm-hmm. About those murders, Lieutenant Wynn said, it could be a serial situation, but we don't know for sure. We're hopeful we come up with something good. The FBI agent based in Albany, New York, Roger Clancy, said he was working with all the New England police agencies to see if there's a commonality among all those crimes. But it was unlikely that Jacobitz had anything to do with a lot of those Connecticut Valley murders. He was in New York State Prison from September 1st, 1981 to September 23rd, 1985 for burglary and escaping jail. He had burglarized a church in Minimart in Plattsburgh, New York. Mm. Then while awaiting trial in the Clinton County Jail, he escaped. And obviously was caught. That would have been around the same time that I used to visit. I would have been like, well, it would have been in the early 80s. Yeah, right. When my college boyfriend was from Plattsburgh. And Mm. um, maybe you met Randolph. Maybe I did. Assistant Attorney General Andrew Sorrell of New Hampshire told the Associated Press that the Connecticut Valley murders remain an open investigation. We're not working on any particular theory at the moment. We have no hot leads. Nothing that would link them, link him, meaning Jacobitz, to New Hampshire. But we will pursue it if it pans out, end Mm. quote. Well, that's why truckers make such great serial rapists and murderers because they're driving up and down the interstate. So a lot of those Connecticut Valley murders were on Interstate 89 and 91. Jim Murray, who was the FBI agent based in Rutland, Vermont, said his agency, quote, is gathering intelligence whether Mr. Jacobitz may have been in those places where the disappearances occurred. Randolph Jacobitz worked as a truck driver for Wildcat Refrigerated Transport out of St. Albans, Vermont. Right about the time Randall Jacobitz was being arrested, the news broke that Pamela Webb's skeletal remains had been found in Franconia Notch, New Hampshire, Mm. about 110 miles northwest from where her truck was found. And also, just so you know, Franconia is about 127 miles north of Mason, New Hampshire, where Pamela's boyfriend lived. They're not in the same part of the state. So those of you who aren't from around here might be like, oh, New Hampshire. Just we're And if you want to know more about Franconia, you can listen to, I think it's episode 20. And it's pretty there. Yes. The articles I read did not say who found the remains, just that they were in a wooded area off Route 3. My guess is hikers or dog walkers. I would say hunters, but there's nothing in season for hunting in in July. Mm. And then I said, oops, I was wrong. A later report said construction workers found it. Ah. I don't know. I must have seen something later after I wrote that. An autopsy was performed on Pamela on July 18th, the day after she was found, but it could not establish a cause of death. She was too decomposed. I think they thought it was obviously homicide, but they couldn't say Mm. how there was no, there were no signs of stab wounds or anything. And they did call them skeletal remains. So there wasn't much left. Dental records were used to identify the body. Kenneth Webb, Pamela's dad, told the Associated Press that the family was, quote, doing as well as can be expected. He was one of the last people to see her before she left on her trip to New Hampshire. 
Pamela had been to a family party the day of her disappearance. She had stayed late so she could tuck in her nieces and nephews. Then she called her boyfriend, Josh, to tell him she was on her way. As I said, when her truck was found, the left passenger side tire was flat. The spare tire was leaning against her truck. The police speculated that she was abducted as she tried to change the flat tire. I have another theory. Granted, it's based on my own experience. Mm -hmm. Once I was driving up the highway... Uh, luckily, it was broad daylight, and one of my tires blew out. I pulled over and was about to call AAA. Um, it was 2003, and I did have a cell phone. A young couple stopped, and the guy offered to change a tire for me, and he was very nice, and I was very grateful. It didn't occur to me to be suspicious, even though I usually am, because probably because he had a woman with him, although, as we know, that doesn't always matter. Right. Also, it was in the afternoon. I remember because I was, I was going to my 20th high school reunion and I had to get home to change and get ready. And I was annoyed mm. by the flat tire and he changed my tire. I thanked him and we were all on our way. But what if someone stopped to help Pamela then hit her on the head with the tire iron or something? That was always my assumption too. And took her. And what if she stopped for gas somewhere to pee and someone punctured her tire knowing it would end up flat? I always thought it was very fortuitous you know it could have been that she's she could have stopped oh i gotta get some gas i mean she's coming from winthrop mm-hmm. um like with me when i'm driving somewhere a lot of times i'm like i want to get out of town and mm-hmm. get on the road and then i'll stop but somebody could have sabotaged her. with many of these it it it's could have been a, it's an opportunity you know even what we talked about with maura murray people oh how likely is it that uh well it's an opportunity. Exactly. Somebody sees the person and says, this is an opportunity for me. And and why I always thought it was someone who helped is because of the tire leaning against the tailgate. Exactly. And also it would have put her at ease. Yeah. As her father said, or her uncle, one of them, she's too trust. Pam's mother, Virginia, had the same theory. At the time of Pamela's disappearance, Virginia told the Biddeford Journal Tribune, she was trying to change that tire and she saw someone that was going to help her. Instead, they grabbed her. As I said before, her purse was in her truck. Later reports said the inside of the truck cab was, quote, undisturbed. So initial reports of blood in the truck must have meant either in the truck bed or on the truck. I think they meant in the truck bed because the when you see the photos of the crime scene, it's open. And she had a cap on the back of the truck. The dog crate was in the back of the truck, but the dog was in the truck cab with her. Of course mm-hmm. he wouldn't be. On July 25th, 1989, Pamela's funeral was held in Winthrop. 500 mourners attended the Mennonite service that was held at St. Francis Xavier Catholic Church in Winthrop. St. Francis's was the biggest church in town and offered to have the service there because they knew a lot of people would be attending. The Reverend Glenn Metzler told the crowd, Pam knew God personally. About her Bible being in the front seat of the truck, the Reverend said, that's Pam. She knew her Bible well. And now imprinted in my mind is the picture of her Bible lying on that truck seat. That to me is a symbol. We should take comfort from God's love as Pam did, end quote. Pam's sister said that if Pam were there, she probably would have forgiven her killer. The reverend told the congregation he agreed. Pamela's mother, Virginia, told the Associated Press, quote, the people of this town were pretty outraged by it all, plus the people she worked with. Pamela was a Mennonite, and I go to the Congregational Church in Winthrop, but we don't let the differences in religion alter our respect for each other. Virginia said, we're hanging in there, as they say. At least we don't have to wonder what is happening to her. I don't know how other people who have some when missing do it. I don't know whether I could do it. We've had support from the whole state. 
and New Hampshire too. I have a basket of cards. Some people even sent cards before they found her. The family was creating the Pamela Webb Scholarship Fund to be given annually to a graduating senior from Winthrop High School. Virginia said, we want it to go to a student who has to really work hard for what they got. That's what Pamela did. She wasn't an A student. She really worked. In early August of 1989, Maine State Police spokesman Steve McCausen said that Randolph Jacobitz had been ruled out as a suspect in the abduction and murder of Pamela Webb. He said it's extremely unlikely that he could have been in Maine at that time. Evidence found that ruled out Randolph Jacobitz included a toll receipt from July 1st from the New Jersey Turnpike and a truck repair receipt from the same day. On July 2nd, Randolph had delivered some beef to Quebec and customs records show he crossed the border that evening. With this evidence, Steve McCausland conceded, quote, we have virtually ruled out Jacobitz. We are continuing to follow up leads we have. This is a frustrating case. It's going to be a slow time consuming investigation. In September of 1989, the Associated Press reported that information about Pamela's murder had been entered into the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, which was a database put out by the FBI Boston Bureau that was specific to this type of crime. Back in July, when Pamela was first reported missing, her information was put in the National Crime Information Computer, a more generalized database. Here is a letter to the editor that ran in the Tuesday, August 29th, 1989 issue of the Bangor Daily News. The headline, Horror Stories Come True in Maine. I am a native and resident of Maine, was born here, raised here, and am proud to live here. These are hardworking, honest, and down-to-earth people, people who stuck together, people who raised their families with dignity and didn't have a need to lock a door. We watch movies on television and theaters that are fictitious accounts of a writer's mind, stories that bring in millions of dollars, movies like Halloween, Friday the 13th, and Freddy's Revenge. Well, I have stories for you that are not fictitious. They are true horror stories happening in this state. Joyce McLean was murdered nine years ago, and nothing has been done. Michael Cochran was murdered eight years ago, and nothing has been done. Peter Bassett was shot to death a year ago, and nothing was done. Pamela Webb was found raped and murdered, and the list goes on. There are many more unsolved murders. And if you can grasp this, we now have an eight-year-old girl raped and murdered, and the accused murderer is arrested for probable cause and released on $1 bail. I am appalled and ashamed of our legal system. How much of this can we sit back and take and still hold our heads up with dignity? You need not go out for a horror book or movie. There are real horrors happening here tonight. And I would ask you to lock our doors because we have murderers walking free. That was by Daryl Cochran of Bangor. Mm. We talked about Joyce McLean in episode 108. As for the others he mentioned, I looked them up out of curiosity. The letter writer is the father of Michael Cochran, who's the second person mentioned, which is why he mentions the name. His son escaped jail the day he was to start serving a five-year prison sentence on drug-related charges, and he was also facing trial on an assault charge. His burned body was found two weeks later, his escape in the woods in Durham, Maine. His case was not solved. There is a book about it, about there being a police cover-up. Peter Bassett was a postal worker who was shot in the head. And I think I remember this. I one. remember this one. Shot in the head on the corner of State and Essex Street in downtown Bangor. He was wearing his uniform, but it was at night. At that time, a man named Terry Thompson had been arrested, but apparently nothing ever came of it because from my quick perusal, his case is still unsolved as of a year ago. But 
it's also not on the state police list of unsolved murders. So maybe the thing that said it was unsolved was someone thinking it was that the person be. that was arrested wasn't, I don't know. I didn't have time to research that no. one. That seems like an interesting case. though. The reference to the eight-year-old being raped and murdered is about the 1989 murder of Heather White by 16-year-old Trey Emery. Because Trey was a juvenile, he was released into his parents' custody, which caused quite a stir. Mm. And of course, we're talking about Pamela Webb right now, who is also mentioned in that letter. In October 1989, Jeffrey Hawes, the state trooper who first reported seeing Pamela Webb's truck on the turnpike, was fired for lying. He initially had told investigators he first saw her truck at 2.30 a.m. on Sunday, July 2nd. He later admitted that he saw it three hours earlier at 11.35 p.m. He didn't stop to investigate it at that time. This is how the court papers and one of the lawsuits that we'll talk about later tell it. Haas was a main state police trooper assigned to patrol the turnpike. On July 1st, 1989, Haas went on duty at 11 p.m., entered the turnpike in gray, and drove south. At approximately 11.35 p.m., he noticed a disabled truck in the southbound breakdown lane near mile 30 in Biddeford. Haas did not see anyone around the vehicle and observed that the truck had a flat tire, a spare tire was on the pavement, and the truck's tailgate was down. Haas did not stop, but proceeded south to the York toll booth. He remained there for approximately an hour and 15 minutes. Mm. Thereafter, Haas drove north and again observed the disabled pickup. He did not observe anything different and again did not stop. Eventually, at 2.30 a.m., he stopped and conducted an inspection of the pickup. He filled out a patrol check card, which is used to mark and identify disabled vehicles. Haas did not order the vehicle towed because there was a dog in it. On July 2nd, 1989, blood was found near the pickup and earrings were found ground into the gravel nearby. The state police suspected that the driver may have been abducted. At a meeting with his night supervisor the next evening, Haas denied seeing the vehicle when he passed by the site at approximately 11.35 p.m. the previous night. The state police subsequently opened an investigation into the disappearance of Pamela Webb, but Haas did not tell investigators that he actually first saw her truck at 11.35 p.m. the night of July 1st. On approximately July 18, 1989, the body of Pamela Webb was found in the woods of New Hampshire. It was determined that Webb had been the driver of the pickup and that she had been murdered. In September 1989, Haas admitted that he first observed the pickup at 11.35 p.m. Haas was instructed to complete a report on the incident, and in that report, Haas incorrectly stated that he had stopped checked the pickup and filled out a patrol check card at 11.35 p.m. Mm. He also gave the investigators a falsified patrol check card stating that he had inspected the vehicle mm. at 11.35 mm. p.m. So he on, lied twice then. Yes. On Jesus. October 11th, 1989, Haas admitted for the first time that he did not stop at 11.35 p.m. on the night of July 1st and that he did not inspect Webb truck until 2.30 a.m. on July 2nd. He also admitted that the patrol check card he submitted in September had been falsified. House was dismissed from the state police effective November 20th, 1989 for the falsification of, his, of official state police records and for his untruthfulness during the investigation mm. of the disappearance and murder of Pamela Webb. And from a later court proceeding, which we'll discuss later. In 1992, the state police contacted the Webbs to tell them that the Kennebec Journal was about to publish an article that detailed the misconduct of state trooper Jeffrey Hawes 
during the investigation of Pamela's murder. Haas was on patrol the night Pamela was abducted. He saw her disabled truck at 11.30 p.m. about 11.30 p.m. on July 1st, but did not stop to inspect it until approximately three hours later. When it became clear that Pamela had been abducted, the police asked Haas when he had first seen the truck. He responded falsely that he first saw the truck at 2 a.m. on July 2nd. Haas persisted with this false account in mm. various forms, including a falsified patrol check card purporting to have been completed on July 1st at 11.30 p.m. Only after Haas became a suspect in the murder investigation did he confess the mm. truth. The I Internal Affairs Division investigated Haas's misconduct and discharge in November 1989. And it's funny because in my memory, I thought the time span was longer and I was worried about the dog. I mean, I was worried about Pam too, but I thought that the time span that the dog was in the, he didn't get the truck towed and he left the dog in the truck yes, till the he next did. morning. Well, he obviously was a not give a shit guy anyway, because they're supposed to, at that time of night, stop. You're supposed if, to always stop. When you stop see and check truck. and see yes. what's going on. But if I, like him, had driven by at 1130, I don't know what's going on there. There's nobody, but yet there's a tire. And then stopped three hours later and saw the dog. I would have said, this friggin' dog has been in this truck for three hours. Instead of just sticking the orange sticker on the thing, I'm going to maybe figure out what Because I remember that he didn't do anything about the dog. Because that 1130 would have been shortly after she would have stopped there. Oh, it's like two hours. Well, they, well, they, they estimate, oh no, she, she left about she nine. Left, it's probably about, she yeah. left about nine. So it would have, so it would have taken like an hour, hour and a half and to half. get there. Yeah. yeah. It wouldn't have been that long. In February of 1992, an arbitrator said that Jeffrey Haas's dismissal was justified. Maine state police fired Jeffrey Haas quote for being untruthful and for falsifying state police record in connection with its, his patrol duties, end quote. So okay. just to, I, I just want to make sure I understand it correctly. So at first he lied and said he didn't see it when yes. he obviously drove yes. by there at 1130. But then he then later like, oh, lied again. and made a fake check thing for yeah. 1130. Yeah. So obviously he was going to get caught in that <laughs> lie because at first he said he didn't see it. At I, know. So I know. So what a dumbass. According to the Kennebec Journal, in the report, the arbitrator Robert O'Brien said Trooper Haas exacerbated his subterfuge for several months after he first lied on July 2nd, 1989. He had numerous opportunities to end his deception, but never did so until October. By this time, the criminal investigation into the murder of Pamela Webb had been compromised, end quote. In July 1992, Pamela's family filed a lawsuit against the state of Maine, the Maine Turnpike Authority, and Jeff Jeffrey Haas, who was then a Gardner, Maine police officer. Mm. The lawsuit alleged that Jeffrey Haas' failure to act, as well as the poor investigation by Maine State Police, compromised the investigation of their daughter's death. They were seeking unspecified monetary damages. The state claimed it was immune from lawsuits. Jeffrey Haas responded that he acted in good faith and did check the vehicle. Yeah, the third time he noticed it. Three hours later. Oh, mm. there it is again. I guess I should stop. Ugh. What else do you have to do? You're driving up and down the friggin' turnpike all night. That's your job, buddy. Also, I want to say that every time I've been disabled on the highway and when I've called AAA and I'm waiting, a, a state cop yeah. has stopped I, to see if I'm okay. I once about, this would have been about five or six years ago, I was on my way somewhere and got a text on a Saturday from somebody I supervised that they were like an hour before they were supposed to start work that they were calling in sick. Um, hmm. so I had to pull over and start calling to try to find somebody to sub 
for them. I wasn't going to drive and do that, unlike some people. And within minutes, and this was around Richmond on, on um, yeah, that's nice within that. minutes of me stopping a state. Yeah. And I said to him, I have to take care of this right now because blah, blah, blah. You know, we have to get somebody into work and it's a Saturday and to get the paper out. And he actually sat there behind my car and his with the lights going to keep somebody from hitting me while I did it. I had one time when my, another time my tire blew out and it was in a snowstorm too. And I didn't realize that that's why I went off the road because I didn't realize my tire had blown out. I'm like, it was snowing. Yeah. Yeah. So a cop came, it was weird though. He didn't come and ask me if I was okay. He just came and sat behind me. I had already called AAA, but I think I mentioned it in another episode because a guy stopped and wanted to help me. And I said, no. And he got really like, yeah, you did mention that asshole. Right. It's like, fuck you. Um, Maybe he's the one that killed Pamela. Mm -hmm. But But it would have been easy at night if whoever killed her to stop. First of all, they would have been blocked by any traffic by the car. And also that late at night, you know, yeah, it's, it's on not the passenger like there's a of, mm-hmm. but that's why I think it wasn't, it probably wasn't a long haul trucker because a big truck would have been noticed. Yes. But anyway, in 1994, a news story said that police were trying to find out if another trucker was connected with Pamela's death. This guy was James Robert Cruz Jr. He had been convicted in Pennsylvania in June of 1994 for the murder of Don Marie Birnbaum. Don had been a resident of the Elan School, which we talk about in episode 17 yeah. in relation to Michael Skakel. And I just saw a really bad documentary about that recently. Uh, about Michael Skakel? About the Elan School. Oh yeah, Joe Ritchie used to. It was an awful documentary, but I'll talk about it some other time. The Elan School was in Poland, Maine. Don Marie Burnham disappeared and her body was found in a snowbank on Interstate 89 in central Pennsylvania in March of 1994. James Cruz got life in prison for that murder. Police were wondering if James Cruz was in Maine, July 1989. Steve McCausland said, yes, we are looking at him and I don't want to create any false hope because we have looked at many others and come to dead ends in the past five years. I would not label him as a suspect or a possible suspect. We have come <laughs> up with nothing to bring him to Maine so far, but that doesn't mean we'll stop trying. All right, Steve. Police were looking at driving logs and toll receipts and, quote, anything that might show where he was in early July 1989, end quote, Steve McCausland. But as with all the other leads, that one did not pan out. In 1995, the Maine Supreme Judicial Court refused to dismiss the civil suit against Jeffrey Hawes. David Webber, was the lawyer for Kenneth and Virginia Webb. And that's kind of confusing because his name's Weber and there's his Webb. Mm-hmm. Pamela's parents. He said in an Associated Press article, now we get to ask Jeffrey Haas questions under oath, which we've been unable to do up to now. My clients are most anxious to have the trial that they see as partial vindication for their daughter. Jeffrey's attorney, William Fisher, said that he'd try to get the case thrown out again. Always tried. Mm-hmm. And Jeffrey Haas's appeal, One of his claims was that the statute of limitations, two years, had run out and the Webbs could not sue him. But the court said that in cases of fraudulent concealment, a six-year statute of limitations starts when the concealment comes to light. William Fisher said that Jeffrey Haas should have had qualified immunity as government employee. Attorney Fisher said the decision by Trooper Haas not to stop at 1135 on July 1st 
1989, was a discretionary call on his part. He didn't see any reason to believe criminal activity occurred. He reasonably assumed that the driver of this disabled pickup went to get assistance and he continued on his business, end quote, which we know is not true because he's supposed to stop and check and he didn't. And the also the issue isn't even necessarily that he didn't stop, but then he lied about when he stopped and compromised an investigation just to cover his own lazy ass. I know. William Fisher also said that had Trooper Haas stopped, there would have been no evidence to show that she'd been abducted. Maybe, maybe not. If I were a state trooper and it was 1130 at night and there was a pickup truck with a dog in it and the tire leaning against the back and no one was there, I would like try to figure out. Well, he didn't even know there was a dog there because he didn't stop. Right. Right. But no, what I'm saying is the lawyer says if he had stopped, he wouldn't have been able to tell. Oh, I see. Yes, exactly. If he had been observant, maybe he would have. He's supposed to stop anyways, his fucking job. I don't care what he thought. There's blood in her ear. His earrings. job is if right. someone stopped on the side of the road, that's part of the reason he's patrolling the frigging right. road. But anyways, right. the court upheld the Superior Court's decision dismissing the case against the state of Maine. The Maine Turnpike Authority was still on the hook, though. In September of 1996, the lawsuit was still going on. The state would not release records to the web, saying that the murder case was still open and it would compromise the case. Justice Donald Alexander agreed. David Weber, the web's lawyer, said, it'll make it harder for us. No shit. Mm. November of 1997, Justice Alexander removed the Turnpike Authority from the lawsuit, leaving ex-trooper Jeffrey Haas as the only defendant. In January 1998, Jeffrey Haas filed an appeal again. The appeal was heard October 1998 by the Maine Supreme Judicial Court. Again, Jeffrey Haas's attorney argued that there was nothing Jeffrey could have done to prevent Pamela's murder. In January 1999, Jeffrey Haas won his appeal. The court wrote, we conclude that Haas is shielded by qualified immunity from suit pursuant to federal law and that the causal link between Haas's misconduct and the Webb's injuries is too tenuous to survive a summary judgment motion. Mm. The most recent story is from the Portland Press Herald, published July 3rd, 2018, the 29th anniversary of Pamela Webb's disappearance. Nothing has really come up in years and it remains unsolved. It's not clear if there's any evidence that can be checked now, such as DNA, and I doubt it. And I honestly don't think it'll ever be solved Mm. unless someone comes forward somehow. Um, As with the last case, if anyone knows anything, Maine State Police, 207-228-0857. Mm. And that's just one that people remember when you see because her face. The dog. <laughs> I know. And yeah, it's true though. Every time I see her, I'm like, oh, that's the one whose dog was in the truck. Right. And yeah. I remember because I was a reporter. Yeah. And she was, it, since she was found in New Hampshire. She was found in New Hampshire and her boyfriend lived in New Hampshire. Yes. So she was on, but I also want to say if that state trooper had stopped like he was supposed to, a lot of things could have happened he might have noticed something that would have alarmed him. We don't know what now. Second of all, him stopping then would have nailed down more of a timeline exactly. for what happened. And if he had noticed something, then maybe wheels could have been put in motion that would have solved the case faster or something. Who knows? They would have been quicker 
to look for her. They would have been quicker to ask if anybody had seen anything, all sorts of stuff. So it's disingenuous to say, well, if he had stopped, nothing would have happened. And, ju and just the fact that he lied shows he knew he should have. Also, the fact he lied compromised the investigation as far as him possibly being a suspect and all sorts of other things. And the fact that he lied wasted a lot of people's time. Unfortunately for her, the time that her, she got the flat tire was a bad time because that's when they were changing their... Right. It said he came on duty at 11, probably just about the time that she was getting abducted. And, you know, that's the sad thing. The other cop was probably on his way back to right. Gray and Jeffrey was right. coming down and uh, just so sad. And, but also that case shows how... You know, these cases, there's always so many people who could have been, who were suspects. I know. Who could have been doing is, it. Which is not only scary, scary, but also these people who say, well, what are the odds somebody would have been driving by more? And, more? and they always say a serial killer. It doesn't have to be a it's serial killer. It could Right. It could be a serial rapist who ended up killing somebody. It could be somebody who saw an opportunity to do something that they wouldn't do otherwise. But obviously it happens all the fucking time. It happens on I-95 and it happens well, on Little the Route 112 in New I Hampshire. People think a serial yeah. killer, they think that that's the scariest thing. But I think it's scarier that there's all these individual people out there doing it. And I think maybe... The fact that it's less than it was back in the 70s is because of DNA yeah. testing and people know it's harder and they can't get away with it. And also people are just more alert about that type of thing. But um, where is some of these guys see an opportunity, they're going to do it. So oh, do you have you. A, um, a recommendation? I do. Ooh, negative um, Nellies. <laughs> So I recently watched, it was hard as fucking shit to find this to watch, Oh, the series from 10 or so years ago, Case Histories. Based on the Kate Atkinson books, it was a BBC series and it also aired on Masterpiece Theater in the United States in 2011 and 2013. It's based on the first four Jackson Brody mysteries that, that Kate Atkinson wrote. The first season is six episodes and the second is three. The last two episodes of the second season are original stories written for the TV show, not from her books. And I'll talk a little bit more about that when I get to it. I will say before starting this review that it would be virtually impossible to make a TV series or movies out of her books without having many, many, many episodes yes. um, because her plots are very complex with lots of characters. And it's also hard to translate her tone to mm -hmm. TV. I, I will say before going into this, they're better read than watched. Not that this series isn't worth watching, but to fully experience her books, which are very hard to classify. And I know I said this about Leanne Moriarty too. If she were an American writer and she's not, she's British. She's from Yorkshire originally. She probably wouldn't have gotten published because yeah. it's like, where are we going to put this on the shelf? Her plots are not your classic plot. Jackson Brody is played by the very scrumptious Jason Isaacs. And he was in the Harry Potter movies, too. I know you don't watch it, right! You know, if I brought it up, you get upset. Okay. No. In fact, I was just about to say, <laughs> I'm sure many people will know him because he was in the Harry Potter movies. He played a villain. And, and I have not watched, but... On. 
He looks better as Jackson Brody. But whenever, <laughs> as I was going to say, whenever an actor, <laughs> even an established one who's been in many, many, many things on stage and screen, is in Harry Potter, all of a sudden, the whole narrative about the person becomes, and I'm not saying you because I have this written down here. That You're I was very, very touchy about it. It's I, a, it was a very successful movie series, so of course people are going to know that. We're not here to talk about Okay, anyway, go on about he's scrumptious, blah, blah. He has bleached blonde hair, and he's not scrumptious in Harry Potter. That'll make you happy. Are you frozen? I'm, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm You're frozen, frozen in shock. frustration. <laughs> You're trying to change my narrative by dismissing okay, go on. my Harry Potter thing, thereby making it worse. Okay. <laughs> So what I was going to say about the very scrumptious Jason Isaacs, and if he wasn't scrumptious in Harry Potter, well, that's the loss of all the Harry Potter fans. But I was going to say, he's an extremely good actor, and many good actors who are in the Harry Potter movies, people just remember them as being Harry Potter actors. Yes, and I, I think he actually, this was more of a signature role, but then he was in Harry Potter, so of course it erases everything. So that's what I was going to say um, like 20 okay. minutes ago. When you said <laughs> so anyway, let's get started and I'll talk more about it. As I don't know. have the list in front of me. So I, hope I you know have it. this written down for once. Okay. You're oh very, God. you're in a very bad mood tonight. Okay, go on. Okay. Number one. Bad, bad reenactments. No. Because okay. it's a fiction show, so there are no reenactments. Okay. Narrative cliches. I'm taking off half a point. Ooh. Not on the first season or the first episode of the second, because those are based on Kate Atkinson's actual books and stories. The last two episodes of the second season are original and devolve much more into typical cop show stuff. I'll talk more about it in other categories, but cliches in the final two episodes include the controlling Middle Eastern father mm, cliche that mm. British shows seem to love so much, a strip club theme, which I'm getting very sick of, <laughs> and more. Racial gender obtuseness. No, Kate Atkinson definitely doesn't have it in her books, which are very focused on all types of violence against women, and the show doesn't either. I was listening to the first episode we did in NNW in episode 46, and we mentioned that a lot of this has to do with having tropes and cliches around race and gender, and the series does not have those. Jackson's secretary, Deborah, is black, as is the boyfriend and later husband of the white female cop, possible love interest, and he does have a disgusted ex-wife, but I'll, I'll give him a pass uh -huh. on that. Lack of good visuals. No, it's beautifully filmed in Edinburgh, mm -hmm. a city that I had the great privilege to visit in 1995 with Liz and hope to go back to yes. next year. I can't wait. It's a really interesting, beautiful city and the camera work makes the best of it and the surrounding countryside. It's mm -hmm. a beautifully shot show. He's from Yorkshire. Only one of her Jackson Brody books is in Edinburgh, but it, they probably didn't want to travel all over England um, filming these. And also Edinburgh is a great place to shoot. And I am just as happy that they shot it in Edinburgh because it's beautiful. Missing pieces. I'm taking away a point. I know you can't get everything from a book into a series, especially a Kate Atkinson book, but there are some things that really made the books good that are lacking. 
a lot of little detail stuff, some plot threads and characters. Also, in the last two episodes, the original to the series one, there are some plot holes. I'm not going to get into in detail because I don't want to get tangled up in discussing plot. But the biggest missing piece is also a storytelling issue. Last two episodes lacked the tone, the spirit, the irony, and the humor of her books. It's hard enough to get that into a TV show when you're adapting a story that she wrote. It's even harder when you're flying blind and you're not Kate Atkinson. Uh She gets a partial writing credit on the shows. I looked it up, but I think that's because the shows are based on her books. I don't think she sat down and helped write the scripts or anything. I think some of the stuff from her books is woven into the last two episodes. I'm not sure because it's been years since I read them, but still there's a lot missing. The major missing thing, the thread having to do with his sister and what happened to her is in the first few episodes, but it's played down more than it is in the books and it's not nearly as satisfying or interesting. The other missing piece which I guess also could have gone in storytelling, is the captions. As you know, I have mm-hmm. captions on no matter what I watch. But when what you're watching is in Scotland and people are talking in Scottish accents and stuff and Jackson has a Yorkshire accent, I really need fucking accurate captions so I can understand what the <laughs> fuck saying. The captions start out all right in the first episode, but get increasingly worse. So by the end, by the final (laughs) couple episodes, there's a lot of inaudible when even Ah. I can tell what they're saying. Or it gets a word totally wrong because their Scottish accents make it sound one way and not another. Sometimes it's like, what? What are they saying? Because it's crucial to the plot. Also, the attribution gets worse. He has a 10-year-old daughter named Marley because these captions have the person's name. Yeah, when they're talking, yeah. Sometimes it's Marley. Sometimes it's Molly. And by the third episode, half the time when any woman talks, it says Marley, even if she's not in the scene and she's a 10-year-old girl and they have a grown woman. And it says, I mean, come on. Another thing is, I said, the theme of his sister dying when he was a kid. Her name is Niab, which um, I know I'm pronouncing that kind of wrong. It's spelled N-I-A-M-H. And it's often these days spelled Neve. It's but it's kind of pronounced a little, just a little different than Neve. Part of the flashback is him as a 10-year-old running through the woods, screaming her name. In the first show, it has him screaming her name, and it spells it N-I-A-M-H, the way it is spelled. The second episode, it spells it N-E-V-E. The third episode, it has him running through the woods, yelling, Steve. <laughs> so if someone has no idea what's going on here and Steve. hasn't read the books and already seen this like, like I have why is say, he always calling why people? is this little boy running through the woods first he was calling a woman's name but now he's saying steve is there something wrong here so oh so i gotta take the only missing pieces is the only place i can put that okay. since i watch a bunch of different streaming services and stuff captions are different on everything. Yes, um, I get annoyed with both BritBox and Peacock that you have to enable the captions every show. BritBox, you actually have to enable them before you start the show. Ugh. Or it starts without them, and then you try to enable them, and it makes the show start from the beginning, and it's very annoying. Netflix, as usual, is the old standard yeah. for streaming in many, many ways. And not only are the captions on and i don't have to redo them but the captions are accurate yes and they reflect what's being said so inaccuracies anachronisms the shows take place 
um, during the period they were filmed, 2011, 2012, so there are no anachronisms. There are some small inaccuracies, especially when compared to the books, but nothing I'm going to take away any points for. Storytelling, I'm taking away a point. <gasps> First of all, the last two episodes, which I said, aren't based on actual Kate Atkinson books. They really don't capture the spirit of her, her unique storytelling. Mm-hmm. And this NNW is about the storytelling of the shows, not of her books. Her storytelling is unparalleled. Just the way she weaves multiple plots, her tone, her empathy for characters. She's an extraordinary writer, and I know it's hard to get a lot of that onto TV. The last two episodes, although they do have a few little things I think that they took from the books and threw in, they just don't hit the mark that the ones based on her books do. The final episode is really depressing. It needed more Kate Atkinson. One thing that makes her book so good is how she manages a lot of empathy and different ways of looking at things into the plot threads as i said i just felt the series totally dropped the ball in the last two quote-unquote original episodes not that they're not worth watching but it you feel like you're just watching more of a cop detective show than a kate atkinson story it slowly like the first episode and maybe it's because the story which involves two grown sisters whose other sister disappeared when they were kids you know he's trying to find this woman's cat and stuff just stuff unique to her book that make it but i'd say with each episode it gets a little less kate atkinson The final one that's based on her books came early, took the dog, which is loosely, that title, I love it, it's loosely based on an Emily Dickinson, first line of an Emily Dickinson poem. There's a great plot involving a former cop who she's now a security cop at a mall and a little girl who's being abused who who ends up with her the cop is played by an actress named veronica wood who i guess was very big in britain she died in her early 60s of cancer um that was in, in my memory one of my favorite of the jackson brody book and i think that the show does a good job with it but I feel it could have been done better. And I think the good job is largely because of the actress that plays Tracy, the yeah. security guard. So the storytelling compared to Kate Atkinson, but also I think that if I were doing this and not comparing it, and I, I think it's okay to compare it if when it's supposed to be based on a book. The last two episodes just become more cop or detective because he's not really a cop, more just kind of by rote the kind of the trite stuff and less less her freshness i would say yes it is fresh despite that it's the they're unique stories it's set in beautiful edinburgh which um you don't see a lot of shows set in it's just done in a way that a lot of shows aren't i was looking for something that wasn't a procedural that wasn't going to have cops standing in front of a big incident board reciting (laughs) exposition which i'm getting sick of Especially when there's two cops and they hand off the exposition to each other and it's like like repetition. There's a little bit of repetition, nothing I'm going to take points away, like his secretary complaining about not getting paid and some of his foibles in the books. It, It doesn't really beat you up too much because it's spread among a lot of other things. 
in the TV show, it gets to be a little here we go again ish. Yeah. Beating the drum, it does not. So that is 7.5. I highly recommend it if you're looking for something different to watch. It is hard to if find. If you can find it, yeah. It was, I found it on IMBD streaming, which is oh. free. I think they also have one that you can pay for that yeah. doesn't have commercials or something. I don't know. It was on Amazon Prime, but it's no longer on there. It's supposedly on Peacock, but I couldn't find it on Peacock. So if you can get IMDB streaming, which I just got the app for through on my tablet. And, you know, I watch on the Chromecast on my big TV. And I also, as an aside, highly recommend her books that made me yes. realize I wanted to read them again. And I bought Big Sky, the fifth Jackson Brody book, two years ago and was waiting to read it until I finished writing my book, which I haven't done, but I even forgot I had it. And I don't even think I realized at the time it was Jackson Brody. Anyway, anyway tomorrow's Thanksgiving. And again, I want to thank all our listeners. Yes, who have, some I'm giving who have been, thanks to all of our listeners. Some That's of who what have, I'm thanking tomorrow. Some of who have been with us for five years. Yeah. Can you believe we've been doing this for five years? No, it's been fun too. It's yeah, it still is, fun. It we have fun. a good it's time. Still fun. Yeah. Because it's not like we're getting rich on it. But no, you know, because it costs pe- money. But we're luckily we have very generous, some very generous. Yeah, we do have some nice patrons. Very sweet. We don't and have any ads. That's our plus. That's right. We have too much integrity. And free. <laughs> 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 Anyway, but we'll be back in a couple weeks. Do you think if we start talking about things like Casper mattress or something no. like, no, I mean, if we like plug them, that they'll be happy and then they'll, no, no. Okay. they'll just say, oh, look at those idiots <laughs> for free. And then we'll look like shameless product whores. whores who aren't even getting paid. So how sad is that? <laughs> so we'll see everybody in a couple weeks. Thanks Bye. for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Happy Thanksgiving. Can you see me? Can you I can hear me? see you and hear you and you look awesome. I'll see you. Have hey, a have good you night. taken the turkey out of the freezer? Oh, no. Well, okay. Yes, Momo. It's in the fridge. Okay. okay. I've cooked before. 2015, he died at age 38. 30. Yeah. Wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Your math sucks. I know. I mean, there's he's got the flashback. Oh my do you want to do this review? Here, here, here. Here's my tablet. You can do it. Oh my god. Okay, go ahead. Sorry.